this is the Stand Alone Podcast. The thing that would have made me feel the best when I was going through this really difficult time at 14 is if I could show myself what my life looks like now, seven years down the line. If I could go back and prove that all of the incredibly difficult things that I was about to go through were going to be worth it, that would have just made things so much easier. My name's Jay, and I'm producing this podcast series for Standalone UK, supporting estranged adults in everyday life. More times than I can count, I almost took my own life because I couldn't imagine in my own head a world that was beyond the limits of this really small backwards town that I was in. Because I was removed, I felt safe. There was no longer this pressing need to unveil everything that had been going on and confront everyone and it was fine. Like for the first time in four years I felt safe and so I didn't want to immediately upset that. Across these episodes, 10 participants who have very kindly offered to share their experiences of family estrangement. I just saw the look on her face and she looked devastated. It was, oh my God, you're going to hell. And the next morning she she got me a new Bible and she'd highlighted all the quotes which had me going to hell in them just in case I missed any of them. You know that scene in Dairy Girls when I'm coming out to you, don't come out, go back in. So it was that. But from your mum and when you're a child and your mum says that, it affects you. The first thing she said when I said, yeah, I might be depressed was, you can't be depressed because the travel insurance costs will go up as one of the sort of the pre-declared conditions. And that was the first thing she said. And then that was also the last we ever spoke about it. So it was not a fun childhood, but in some of the extremes, they're actually quite funny to look back on, just how absurd how she how she took it all went. No two experiences of estrangement are the same, but hopefully throughout this podcast series, you'll hear useful ideas to take away whether they're similar journeys or contrasting opinions. Estrangement looks different for everyone. It doesn't have to be an absolute thing. It doesn't have to be no contact with anyone for a year. Because that's not realistic. It's not in my control. That's what estrangement actually looks like. It's not having meaningful relationship. Well, I've just arrived to meet with Becca Blunt, the founder of charity Standalone UK. What a gorgeous area. Let's go inside. Hello, Becca. I'm good, I'm just outside. Fabulous, thanks very much. Hello. Come in. Thank you so much. How are you doing? Good oh, journey. Well, yeah. Really nice. Hello. Hello. Hello, Blair. How are you doing? Not bad, how are you? Hi, really well, thanks very much. Having a good morning so far? Hi, not bad. I first met Blair in our Scottish Parliament event a few months ago, so around October time. I found Blair to be one of the most inspirational speakers on this subject that I've met in a long, long time. I think he has a really heartbreaking and compelling story and has a real determination to want to change things, not only for him, but for others too. And I think that's so admirable that he's putting his personal experience out there to really help other students in this position. 
when I've met Blair, I could see that there was a very strong understanding of the inequalities of not providing the same support to estranged young people who've been missed by the care system as those people who've been in the care system. I think that when he speaks, he speaks so clearly on that and his personal experience has really informed what he wants to campaign on. And I think for all members of the LGBTQ community, it's a really strong issue that isn't really looked at enough because values have changed and people have become more comfortable with the idea of being gay, lesbian, transgender um, or any of the other kinds of sexualities. But I think still some values and some generations do find it difficult to accept that. Hi, I am Blair Anderson. I am a law student up at the University of Glasgow at the minute and I also work in environmental sustainability. I came to be estranged basically because I'm gay and experienced some family rejection due to religious issues. Yeah, so I've been estranged for a few years now. Coming to university was what changed everything in terms of feeling safe and feeling accepted and feeling in a safe place to estrange myself from my family. And since then, I've been working with Standalone to improve the provision of funding and support for estranged students, particularly in higher education. I work at the University of Sunderland and I saw like recently they had a hashtag that they were using in collaboration with Standalone. Yeah, yeah. So this week has been Estranged Students Solidarity Week. It's just an awareness campaign. I know that Standalone tries to get universities and colleges to sign up to their Standalone Pledge, which is these institutions pledging that they'll support estranged students. So this week has been mainly a social media thing, but a chance to highlight the issues around estrangement. For example, because it's Estranged Student Solidarity Week, one of the MSPs, so members of the Scottish Parliament up here, who's been sort of lobbying on the issue, actually raised the issue of estranged students at First Minister's Questions. And Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister, said that she was aware of the issue and looking into it. So it's just a good chance to raise the profile of the issue. That's fantastic. So... The standalone pledge is a pledge that the Vice-Chancellor of a certain university takes to support students like Blair. What that means is they write a public letter of commitment detailing the supportive policies they'll put in place for accommodation, mental health, finance and outreach. So we know that students like Blair really struggle with accommodation. They might not have a guarantor, like which is often a family member, or they might not have accommodation. In finance, they may be very, very short of money because they're not having any of their living expenses topped up by family. And mental health can be a real struggle for these students, particularly around vulnerable times of the year like the festive period. So we're really encouraging universities to put these supportive policies in place. So, for example, a guarantor scheme, a specific bursary for estranged students or unlimited counselling so they can overcome trauma. And we feel that's really, really important that these universities step up and say that these students really need support and that they really, really need people around them who are going to act as family members act for others so they can level the playing field slightly. And I'm really, really pleased to say that 83 universities have now taken that pledge um, and almost all institutions in Scotland have now taken the pledge. So Blair's campaigning and Blair telling his story with us and with our support has really helped universities to galvanise those senior leaders who can make these important decisions. 
And indeed, he's really helped politicians see why this is such an important issue. Because the amount of times that I've met politicians and they have just thought, oh, I've never thought of this before, or I've never realised in a million years that someone would be in that position. And, oh, yeah, you do need a guarantor, don't you? Or, wow, the summer period, yeah, we do expect them to go home. In some ways, it really blows their mind to think that there are students outside of the care system that don't have that. And so I think those stories, sharing those experiences, doing this lobbying, campaigning and awareness raising is so, so crucial because it's a part of sharing humanity and who we are and our human experience of life, as well as the kind of more political aims of changing some policies. It's about saying, look, not everyone has a family network to rely on and not everyone knew that and not everybody, nobody in society really helped me with that. And for people like Blair, for people like myself, for other campaigners, and there's so many student campaigners that have done this brilliantly, in sharing their stories, I think it has really helped them to feel that they are in control of a change that they can make, not only for themselves, but for other people. I'd love to hear about how you got involved in that work with Standalone. Yeah, so um, my involvement with estrangement as an issue was just purely by chance. I'm sort of in my third year and sort of in my fourth year at university. This is my fourth year at university, but last academic year, so 18, 19, I had to drop out, which means this year I'm repeating the second half of my third year. So I'm just going to be in uni forever. But the reason, <laughs> the reason I had to drop out was because, was basically because I'm estranged. The way that the funding system works in Scotland, so it's SAS, Students Award Agency for Scotland. They're the loan people. How they determine how much funding you get basically depends on if you're a dependent student or an independent student. If you cannot prove you're independent, it is assumed that you'll be dependent on your parents, so your funding will be a lot less. Hmm. Previously, there were set criteria to classify yourself as independent. It was married, care-experienced, over 25, or have kids, effectively. There were a couple other ones, but there was no option for estranged. So this is how I came into the issue of estrangement, was because every year I would go through this system and I would phone up and say, I am an independent student, but I don't meet your definition of independent student to get the funding I'm entitled to. You know, oh, so if you don't meet the funding, then you're not independent. I was like, well, I don't speak to my family. I am totally financially independent. I pay my own rent. They don't provide any financial support. So how is that not independent? I was like, oh, well, if you don't meet the criteria, then I'm afraid that's just how the website works. And I was like, okay, are we going to change it? And they said, no, not really. It just wasn't a priority for them. So that meant that I was getting £3,000 less per year than I was entitled to. Because I didn't meet one of these specific criteria, they assumed that my parents were helping me out, which obviously they weren't. So I found myself working like 25 hours a week on top of uni just to make ends meet. And even then I wasn't really. I was having to like steal food from my work. I was often late paying rent. And it got to the point where I just couldn't keep going. Something had to give effectively. For the sake of my mental health, I had to drop out of university. And just by chance, I was speaking to people in the financial aid team here at the University of Glasgow. And they knew someone called Dan, Dan Keenan, who worked in widening participation. And it turns out he knew all about the issues of estrangement, but I just never came across him before. So I got into contact with him and he said, oh yeah, so it turns out you're estranged. And I had no idea. I didn't know that there was a term for this category before. I just assumed that I had a funny upbringing. 
I didn't think that I was entitled to any particular support. But I got talking to him and he said, oh, so why do you not get this extra 3000 And I showed him the website. I said, it's literally impossible to claim this money that I'm entitled to that would allow me to be in education. And he's, he looked at it and was like, okay, so this system is broken. <laughs> yeah. It's obvious that the system had been designed by people who had never been in a position like this. So the long and the short of it is, with Dan and with the support of my local MSPs and lots of lobbying of SAS, we managed to get my status changed. So there's a form that Dan signed that basically said, yeah, Blair's told me he's a strange and I believe him. And that was it. It was one side of A4 and that was all I needed to get all the funding I needed to go to university again. So that's really how I first came into the issue of estrangement. But since then, I've been working with Standalone. I've been speaking in the Scottish Parliament. I've been talking to MSPs, talking to my university about the issues, not just the financial issues, but broader issues around estrangement and how that affects people in higher education. So yeah, so since then, I've been working with Dan to try and get the system changed so that rather than having to drop out of uni and lobby MSPs and fight for this funding, there's just going to be a tick box on the website. So fingers crossed that comes in sooner rather than later. But going forward, wow. hopefully it should be a little bit simpler for everyone to get the funding they're entitled to. Blair, that's that's absolutely incredible. I really respect how you've you've noticed that this massive issue in the system, this oversight, and you've been working to change it. Yeah, I know I was out of a not ideal situation, but I was also very lucky, relatively privileged. I study law. I have a fairly good understanding of politics. So when I dropped out, I was in an opportunity to make a difference because I knew that if I kicked up enough fuss and if I had the support of some of my boyfriend and his family and the support of people around me to sort of get me through the difficult transition period of dropping out of uni, I could lobby MSPs and then get them to kick up a fuss and work with standalone to make the change. So I wanted to make sure that I dropped out and I got the funding sorted for me, but also that no one else would have to drop out in the future because it's not a year wasted. I don't want to say that, but it's a year of my life that's been put back because of just an admin issue and an extra seven grand a day I need to pay back. But hopefully it means that no one else will have to do the same. I remember coming away from that conversation with Blair, feeling, like you said, just so inspired about what he's doing the lobbying, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Campaigning, raising awareness, all of those things are part of what he's doing for us at Standalone. And he's a really inspirational speaker and has a really clear steer on the inequality of not offering the same support to people who've experienced similar things to those in the care system but who have not been picked up by it for whatever reason. And that applies to a huge number of people in the LGBTQ community, as the care system doesn't always have a remit over situations where they're disowned by their families. And if they make the choice to come out to their families, it is relatively common that families will struggle or grapple with this issue. And it can weaken family bonds. And there is research to show People who are LGBTQ at university have much lower levels of contact with family than their peers who are not LGBTQ. So there are distinct disadvantages for that one set of people in that situation. I mean, just just that period where you were having to work 25 hours a week on top of university as well in order to make those funds meet. And you talked about the toll that that took on your mental health at the time. Yeah. Yeah, so... In effect, what I experienced from the age of about 14 onwards 
I didn't realise it at the time, but it was abuse. It was abuse and neglect, primarily emotional, but for years and years. So for the four, five years after I first came out and after everything went badly, um, I was still trapped in that house. I was still trapped in that town. And basically university was the only way that I thought I was going to get out. It was the only way I could get out. So that was the only thing that kept me going all those years. But obviously that has an effect on you when you're a child. I was 14 and all of a sudden I developed these really severe mental health issues, which I still have. But since getting to university, I've been able to get the support and they've been a bit more manageable. But yeah, it's never easy. You don't get cured from a mental health issue. You just manage them. And when every single day you're waking up and thinking, I don't have enough money to eat today, that sort of stress just makes everything worse again. So I wasn't able to focus on uni. The light bulb moment when I decided to drop out was I got some feedback from some essays I've been working on. Basically, I got a C. And in the past, when I've been well, I've been a sort of A and B student. And I didn't want to be a C and B student because I didn't want to get a 2-2 when I could get a 2-1 or a first just because the system wasn't working right. So that was when I decided to drop out, yeah. And in effect, I suppose, being able to focus on the second half of that third year rather than the whole thing potentially could be useful at this stage, maybe. Yeah, so I'm basically repeating third year, but I've already done the first half. So for the last few months while I've been at university, I've been able to focus on extracurricular things and sort of building up my CV so that I don't just leave with a degree and nothing else. So it's been a nice sort of transition back into university and back into normal life. So I've been campaigning with standalone I work as the university as one of the university's environmental sustainability coordinators so I've got a lot of work with them at the minute on our climate crisis strategy and yeah it's just been nice to feel that things are a bit more manageable rather than sort of being in permanent crisis mode from you know one deadline to the next and running about and running to from work and not getting enough sleep and all that yeah yeah I understand I mean I've been through university a couple of times myself so yeah I have that same <laughs> sleepless night bit <laughs> and also I, I i suppose in a way but very different I, I relate to you in that i was also 14 when i came out as well i mean i guess you have all of these these thoughts and ideas of how it's gonna go and you're playing it out in your head and and you're like could it go this way could it go that way can i ask you about if you're having to talk about that time of your life at the age of 14 building up to coming out and then and then as it happened yeah of course i don't want to be that person but i just want to sort of warn anyone who's listening that it's not the most pleasant of story and so if anyone has experience of homophobia or abuse as a child that they might not want to listen in complete detail but yeah so i was brought up in a very very church of scotland household so both my grandfathers were missionaries wow one in bangladesh one in korea my aunt and uncle were missionaries in France. My other aunt and uncle ran a Christian radio station. Both my parents were church elders. So yeah, it was a family thing. <laughs> so I always had this, I was brought up in a culture where being gay was not an option. It's difficult because from the age of say 11 or 12 and the start of puberty and you're thinking, oh, this doesn't feel quite right. You do feel like there's something wrong with you. I imagine that that is the case for any queer child growing up, but even more so when you're sitting at a dinner table and they're making comments about you without them realising. 
So I always knew it wasn't going to go down well, but in a sort of a, a fit of 14 year old optimism, was it? I mean, what's the worst that can happen? And then, you know, the worst happened. It was just one night when I was fairly sure, I, I'd always known that I was gay, but I'd only been able to like say it out loud to myself since say 13, 14. It wasn't an easy time just to accept it within myself, never mind to ask anyone else for acceptance. I sat down with my mum and said, oh, so, yeah, something, I just wanted to let you know, like, something feels a bit different, and I think this might be why. And then I was like, yeah, so this is me coming out. And then all of a sudden, as soon as the words left my mouth, I knew it was a mistake. I knew I had to take it back, or else the next four years of my life would be hell. (laughs) So it was, you know, that scene in Dairy Girls when... I'm coming out to you. Don't come out. Go back in. <laughs> so it was that. But from your mum, and when you're a child and your mum says that, it, it affects you. So all of a sudden, as the words left my mouth, I knew I had to take it back because there was no way I was going to survive in that sort of environment for the next four years before I got to move out. So I just saw the look on her face and she looked devastated. And people say, oh, well, is it that thing that parents just want their children to be happy and they don't want their children to face any extra difficulty it wasn't that it was oh my god you're going to hell and the next morning she she got me a new bible and she highlighted all the quotes which had me going to hell in them just in case i missed any of them i just said oh no you're right i must not be gay i must be confused i remember it as clear as day i said I was actually confused because I've just not had a girlfriend yet, so I just assumed I must have been gay, so that must be why. Sorry for your time. I'm straight again. Obviously, she didn't buy it, but she wanted to. And so for years, we both lived in this sort of total pretend world. Well, we both knew that I was gay, but we both pretended I was straight for the benefit of each other, I suppose, so that she could look me in the eye and so that I could survive in that house. But as soon as I came out, she was like, does anyone else know? Oh, no. I mean, that was a lie. I told people at school and what have you. But I knew this was the easiest way. So yeah, she said, make sure that no one else ever knows. The exact quote, which stuck with me more than most others, was, if your grand finds out, this will kill her. And that wasn't hyperbole from her. And I didn't know if she meant the physical shock would lead to like a natural death or if it was God somehow going to punish me. But yeah, so no one else was allowed to know, at least in the family. And from then on, it was just this horrible secret between us. And because it was a secret, she was able to manipulate me. She would get me aside when it was just the two of us at family events and like threaten me and make sure no one else knew. And it was always just a horrible case of being afraid to be alone with her because I knew that she was going to say something or she was going to accuse me of something or threaten me with something or call me something. So for four years, I knew that I couldn't. I took it back, pretended to be straight, pretended to have a girlfriend. All my friends, well, they're not my friends anymore, but all the people at school knew and like weren't openly hostile about it, so that was fine. But yeah, I had this weird double life, for want of a cliche. And then beyond just the gay aspect, obviously, as a child, this will affect you. So a couple of months down the line, all of a sudden I started having the most severe mental health issues. And these went on for years and I didn't know what was happening. Like I had no concept of mental health because it just wasn't something. My family don't believe in it effectively. So a couple of years down the line, 
on more times than I could count, I'd been very close to taking my life by suicide. And then it got to a point when I was 17, and I was like, I might, I was really worried that I wouldn't make it out alive. Because the only thing keeping me going was the thought that one day I could leave. I didn't know if I could make it that long. And I said to my mum, I was like, oh, something's not quite right. Can you make me an appointment at the doctor's? Because she was so controlling and manipulative that you couldn't do anything on your own. You had to run everything past her. She had total control over everything I did. So there was no way that I could make an appointment on my own. And she said, oh, why? And I was like, oh, I think it's best if a doctor says. And then that wasn't good enough for her. She said, no, tell me why. Like, I'd rather not. She said, oh, do you think you're depressed? And I was like, I think that's for a doctor to say. The first thing she said when I said, yeah, I might be depressed was, you can't be depressed because the travel insurance costs will go up as one of the sort of the pre-declared conditions. And that was the first thing she said. And then that was also the last we ever spoke about it. So it was not a fun childhood, but in some of the extremes, they're actually quite funny to look back on, just how absurd how she how she took it all went. Yeah. Four years and and well longer than four years of living and p- pretending to be someone else and your mum like asking to not share this with anyone with the rest of the family and then you waiting for university to escape this small minded town. Yeah. Yeah. Um I always knew that getting to university would be just so different. I actually I remember it clear as day, so we were doing you know, open days in your sixth year in your last year at school and you go and look at different unis. So we were on some weird school field trip thing and so I grew up about half an hour outside of Glasgow small town but if people ask where you're from you can say Glasgow and get away with it but we're doing a you know the red city buses the hop on hop off buses so we're doing a school trip going around the different unis I remember as clear as the the bus was going up University Avenue where the University of Glasgow is and there was the rainbow flag at the flagpole at the north front I remember it being the first time in my life I had ever seen it and I was like <laughs> yeah I could live here like if I get into here then I know that I'll be fine because I always knew that university was my only way out there was no other way I could leave that town and yet once I got here I, I was a child when I made all these plans and I knew that when I got to university things would be different but I also never had a clear plan in my head for how things would go because I also had no idea how uni would go. Like when you're moving away from home and starting university and all that, everything changes and you've got no way to sort of prepare yourself for it. So I didn't have a concrete plan. I just knew things would be different. But after getting to university, it was just so busy with Freshers Week and courses and new friends. Because I was removed, I felt safe. There was no longer this pressing need to unveil everything that had been going on and confront everyone and start a big fuss. Because I was fine. Like for the first time in four years, I felt safe. And so I didn't want to immediately upset that. So I got through the first couple of years of university and I went home as infrequently as I could. I tried to just sort of limit contact, but in a way that didn't raise too much suspicion. Just, oh, I'm really busy. I'll see you soon. And I was still leading this double life because honestly, I was afraid of having to reveal it all and have all these awful discussions and stuff. But then it got to the end of my second year and the start of my third year at university I'd been with my boyfriend for about a year at that point and as soon as I tell this story to people at university they're like oh my god that is such a weird childhood like do you not realize how 
not right all of this is. And I was like, oh no, it just seems normal for me. I had no idea. But after a certain amount of time and the continued negative effects on my health, the phone calls and the risk, basically, of just staying attached and finding myself at last feeling supported and safe, I decided to have it out as it well. So I went out for dinner with my dad and I said, oh, so by the way, I have a boyfriend. He was like, oh, all right, go. Cool. He took it as well as could be expected and that he didn't really react. And then I had to go, oh, and there's also something else I have to tell you. There's been a lot of lies for the last, I'd been five, six years at this point. I told mom and this is how she reacted and I consider it to be abuse and she was lying to you and she told me to keep it a secret and she's been manipulating me all this time. And it was not an easy conversation to have. And it couldn't have been easy for him either, but, but yeah, at the end of it, I felt relief, but also everything changed. Like, there was no going back. For five years, this had been building up, and then all of a sudden, people knew, and Pandora's box was opened and all that. So immediately after, I felt relief, but also just like terror at how it was going to go. So after some limited conversations between me and the rest of the family, I was like, I need some space and I don't want to deal with any of you for a while and just don't get into contact with me. Turns out that my mum was sort of at risk of coming to find me. She knew where I lived. I was told that, oh, one day she might just get in the car and come find you because she's threatened to do it in the past week. And I was like, I was just being in my flat and feeling profoundly unsafe for about a week. I had to go and sleep on my boyfriend's parents' couch because that was the only place I could think that my family didn't know existed. She knew where I lived, and that was terrifying. Um, she wasn't going to hurt me physically, but all of a sudden, I didn't feel safe in my own home anymore, which was, if anything, more difficult than all the rest of it, because I'd spent a lot of time and a lot of effort making this my home now. So since then, I've been sort of slowly cutting off ties with family, a very limited contact with my mum, but still some contact for the rest of the family, just irregularly making sure I'm still alive, effectively. But yeah, so that's the sort of the long and short of the estrangement story. Thank you for sharing that, Blair. That's all good. I've told enough people over the past 10 years now. <laughs> Forgive me, you talked about this moment where you told your dad about the five years of abuse. Can I ask how he took it in that moment? Um, have you ever heard of the West of Scotland, Matt? Afraid I haven't, I'm sorry. No, it'll be, it'll be a Scottish flag. Basically, a typical West of Scotland band response is just not really saying anything. West of Scotland man is this idea of sort of resolved, not entirely emotionally intelligent or emotionally available, stoic. He didn't take it badly. He didn't really... I think he thought he was being impartial because he took it as well as could be expected from my perspective. But also, he didn't seem particularly surprised, which I have never been able to wrap my head around in over a year, is how he's not more angry at all and how he's not more surprised. He just sort of accepted it as like a normal thing to have happened. In the year since, he's tried to be a sort of a mediator or an impartial go-between between the two of us, between myself and my mum. I appreciate what he's trying to do, but I often feel very frustrated because it does feel like when the two sides are child who has been abused and child abuser, you can't really take both sides. No, absolutely not. 
But he didn't take hmm. it. He didn't take it badly. He just he reacted as if it was a normal thing to hear your son say, and not something just totally wild for what a child should have experienced. He just sort of accepted it, which in some ways is actually more difficult to to handle than if you'd been outright on her side. Because I could have said, "Oh, that's fine. You're obviously wrong." So that's that but because he's playing both sides he's trying to be impartial but i think in being impartial he's showing where his true feelings lie i'm assuming at this point then is is there then no one in the family that you're in contact with not fully so i'm still in semi-regular contact with my dad and my gran but not in any meaningful way just sometimes when my dad's about we'll get coffee but if anything, that's just to sort of satisfy him, to feel that he's ticked a box in his parenting, made sure he's still alive, all that sort of thing. That's another funny thing, because just in my experience of talking to people who are estranged, there's no one easy definition. Years ago, when I was trying to get all this funding sorted, the definition that SAS used was not had contact with them for a year, which just doesn't work on so many levels. But the main thing is that estrangement looks different for everyone. It doesn't have to be an absolute thing. It doesn't have to be no contact with anyone for a year. Because that's not realistic. It's not in my control. No, it's not. I feel like I don't have a choice to... Yeah. I'm not at the stage where I'm ready to cut off all contact with everyone. But for the past year, I've not had any meaningful relationship with any of them. And I think that's sort of the main thing. That's what estrangement actually looks like, is not having a meaningful relationship, rather than just them forcing themselves into contact with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, is a part of your, your work with Standalone and with the NSPs and the lobbying, is that about changing that definition in, in Parliament as well? Yeah, in part. So I often find myself, when explaining to other people what estrangement is, one of the ways I try to explain it is it's for people who should have been in care because they're in similar positions and they are sort of without meaningful family relationships. But because of various reasons, they weren't put into care. And so they lack all of the legal support that comes with that. So corporate parents and what have you. But the thing with that is that care is very easily defined. Like if you're care experienced, there is a statutory definition for what that looks like. But if you're estranged, there is no one definition. And the risk of being too descriptive is that every single person I've met who's estranged has a totally different idea of what estrangement is to them. But we all know what it looks like. And the more you make that definition specific, the more people that, that won't cover or help. Yeah, yeah. So the original definition of no contact for a year, that probably excludes most people who are actually estranged. Yeah. Most people I speak to say, it's not about not having any contact, it's about not having a meaningful relationship. My ideal, and this isn't at all run past anyone in standalone or anyone in the Scottish Parliament or government, it's basically a self-ID system. The thing I find myself saying at the Parliament when I was speaking at Scottish Parliament was if someone tells you that they're estranged, just believe them. Because I understand that's easier said than done when you're looking at legal protection and all that. But if someone says that they're estranged, they're not lying about that. Can you imagine I made this story up for the benefit of, what, an extra three grand a year? It's just not worth it. And if people feel estranged from their family, then that's sort of the only thing that counts. And try to put a restrictive definition on it just excludes people from protection that they need and actually are entitled to. 
I think the main definition is without any meaningful financial, practical or emotional support from your family, which looks different for everyone. So I think there's some issues in policy. To get my policy geeky hat on for a moment, it's very hard to define a negative. And so it's very hard to define a lack of family. And policymakers have done their best to put parameters around what that looks like. And students have to put their situations against those parameters. And often they come out losing because their family situation is far more complex than those pigeonholes allow them to be. So, for example, 12 months is the often stated minimum term of an estrangement to be able to get defined status. However, so many people may have had a sporadic phone call within that 12 months, so they wouldn't then qualify under those terms, and that means that they miss out on a huge amount of support. So we've always encouraged the government and policymakers to think of this both on a case-by-case basis, but also to believe students when they disclose this information, to know that if they are making the decision to move away from a dysfunctional family, and if they've experienced abuse that's you know critical and means that they can't survive within their family network, that they need to be believed and they need to be given the same support when they declare that. Blair and a group of other really brave and inspirational students in Scotland have been in Scottish Parliament twice this year talking about their experiences, sharing the frustrations of their university journey to decision makers. And to their credit, they've really, really inspired MSPs to get behind their journey and to really lobby other parts of government for more parity and support between care leavers and estranged young people. In First Minister's questions, then she mentioned that she was aware of our campaign and that she would be taking it forward in terms of considering it fully and understanding um, how best the Scottish Government could help. They are well aware that we want parity in the wonderful support that care experienced young people now get in Scotland. And we want that to be extended out to estranged young people who've been missed completely by that system. But for us, it's a matter of family capital and family lack of family is a measure of disadvantage. The care system is not an accurate measure of disadvantage. There are other people that sit around that system are equally as disadvantaged who deserve the same amount of support in their higher education experience are you religious at the moment absolutely not (laughs) (laughs) no so i used to be because we were the kids who went to sunday school and who played joseph in the church nativity and i think a large part of me coming to terms with the fact that i was gay was also coming to terms with the fact i just didn't believe in god because I used to, when you're 12, 13, 14, you don't have a fully thought out worldview. And I found myself at the age of 12 or 13, when I refused to accept I was gay, but I was obviously having quote unquote gay thoughts. And I just couldn't accept this in myself. I tried to bargain with God. I said, what I'll do is I'll be gay on the inside, but then not act on it. And also, I'll not have any gay thoughts on Sundays. And I thought that would be like a compromise that I could make with God. And then I would somehow just be able to be straight from then on. So growing up in that very religious household was, it means that by the time you reach adulthood, then your worldview is a bit warped. After realising I was gay, I was like, it doesn't make sense that I can be gay and also that can be wrong. 
Like, I just did not compute in my mind at all. Mm-hmm. And if anything, coming out as a gay meant coming out as being an atheist because all of the arguments against it, they're not arguments, they're just homophobia, but all of the lines that my mum gave was about sin and God and hell and heaven. And I just don't believe in that. So that doesn't really hurt me as much as I think she likes to think it would. Because she's saying, oh, you won't get into heaven. And I was like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> I don't think it exists anyway. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah. And another thing, if people are religious, that is absolutely fine by me. I'm not telling anyone else. My thing is, I'm not going to tell anyone else how to live their life. If they want to be religious, that's fine. Provided that they don't then tell me that my life should be based on their religion. Because that's what happened to me. And if nothing else, it's just not a good way to convince people to your side of the argument. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But a large part of their homophobia wasn't theological. It wasn't rooted in a good understanding of religion. It was just social. Mm. A lot of their idea of religion was social and sort of performative. I'm going to church on Sunday. I'm going to wear my best clothes. I'm going to judge everyone else based on what they wear and whether they've got like a perfect attendance. It wasn't actually rooted in any sort of thought through theology or religious understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's how people in that town have been brought up for hundreds of years. And it's not based on a proper understanding of what religion is or looks like. Just using the Bible as an excuse to be homophobe because that's how they're conditioned socially. I'm just not religious and I'm not going to tell anyone else to be an atheist with me. So I would like to think that for other people, not trying to sway anyone is the best way to live. I really respect you for that position. And also that you've been able to, I mean, like you were saying, you make a new life in a way. You've made a new life and you've, are you still with the same boyfriend at this point as well? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's incredible. I really respect that you've done this and that you've been able to cut off ties with people that were really unhealthy for you. Yeah, thank you. The thing that would have made me feel the best when I was going through this really difficult time at 14 is if I could show myself what my life looks like now, seven years down the line. If I could go back and prove that all of the incredibly difficult things that I was about to go through were going to be worth it, that would have just made things so much easier. Like I said, I more times than I can count, I almost took my own life because I couldn't imagine in my own head a world that was beyond the limits of this really small backwards town that I was in. I just could not conceive of that possibility in my head that there was anything else out there. The closer I got to university, so 17, 18, it felt possible when I was looking at universities and when I was looking at the halls I was going to be staying in, and when I was packing, like it felt like the rest of my life was opening up. But for those three, four years, the thought of having to wait another three years was just more difficult than the good I thought would come at the end of it. I wish I had known how good things would have ended up seven years down the line. And obviously I've been very lucky. I often find myself thinking because a lot of the the work I've been doing with standalone is about the experience of students in higher education. And I often find myself thinking about the people who don't want to go to university who might find themselves in a similar position because I don't know what I would have done if I'd been in my position and I didn't want to go to university or I didn't feel able to go to university. A lot of the work that I'm trying to do is to raise awareness of the support that's out there. I don't want anyone who's in the last year or second last year at school thinking about going to university and thinking, 
I'm estranged, so I can't afford it, so I can't do it. I want people to know the support that is out there. But if people don't want to go to university, I think the main thing is always about being safe because there have been times in my life where I've been very, very unsafe in the situations I found myself in. And thankfully, things have worked out well and I'm here today. And when I would tell my story to people, people would often say, what's the worst that can happen? And they don't realise that the worst actually can happen. I found myself a child being at risk of homelessness because I was almost kicked out. People should not be cavalier about their own safety and thinking, oh, things will probably work out for the best because they will, but there's a period in between where they might be at risk. So the thing I wish I had known was that eventually things will get better, but in the meantime, just stay safe and find the things that keep you going and find the people that keep you going. Up here in Scotland, we have... LGBT Youth Scotland, which run charity and it does loads of different things. It does some advocacy work, it does research, it offers counselling and it offers activities and safe spaces for young people. And I wish I had known about it when I was 14, 15, 16, because I would have been able to get through it, not on my own, which would have been nice. But I think there is a lot of support out there. It's not always immediately obvious and people don't always know it's out there, but estrangement is lonely but you don't have to do it on your own thank you for this morning and thank you for sharing your journey with me no problem it's useful to actually achieve something out of all this crap <laughs> um rather than just you know telling folk and nothing changes so it's useful to tell it to folk like standalone actually something good will come of it hopefully you're wonderful thank you so much indeed perfect thank you thanks for all that right all the best dude all right you do have a good day bye 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 Standalone is a really small charity and I started the charity seven years ago and have built it up to what it is now, which is supporting people in six different locations and also running a national campaign for students to get them more support and visibility in their higher education process. We've done a huge amount in such a small time. What we really need to ensure that we are around in the long term and that we can scale properly is more donations from people like you. If you support charities, you'll know that there are bigger charities that ask for donations all the time on TV, on billboards, on the tube, on the bus, and they have really huge campaigns. This is great, but as a small charity, we can't afford those kind of campaigns. So we're asking you, our committed listeners who are impacted by this issue, to support the charity. And if you can set up a monthly donation of just five or ten pounds, it makes a huge difference to what we can do for you. If you go to our Just Giving site, which is www.justgiving.com slash standalone, then you can make a donation, a one-off donation, and also set up a monthly donation if you're able to. Your funds go a really long way to help people with this niche issue. And it means a lot to me as a founder to see other people supporting the charity. A lot of people think that support should just be with them, but we really need everyone to contribute to make sure that this support can scale and grow and reach as many people as possible. Please do consider giving a monthly donation to Standalone or giving us a one-off donation on the Just Giving site. Thank you. As this is episode six, we're about halfway through the first series of the Stand Alone podcast. 
thank you so much for joining us on our journey thus far. As ever, I'm really keen, and Becca as well is really keen to hear your thoughts about how we might be able to improve this podcast in the future. So please get in touch with us via the Standalone UK Twitter if you have any thoughts to share with us. That's at Standalone UK. We want to make this podcast the best that it can be for you. The next episode is going to be a little different. Instead of digging deep into someone's personal experience of estrangement, we're going to be meeting Pippa, who's the writer of Mother in the Mother, a thoughtful anthology of women's voices exploring their maternal lineage. It's a book which features the voices of over 50 mothers from a diverse range of ages, cultural backgrounds and experiences, and it explores many themes which relate to motherhood, pregnancy, family and relationships, including family estrangement. The book is the end result of a wider project which involved lots of different creative workshops, and Pippa shares about that experience of creating this project with her 50-some contributors and participants. I start the book with an introduction called The Story Behind the Story, so kind of talking about what led me to do the project in the first place. And it was quite sad in some ways because I realised that in some ways what I had almost unconsciously set out to do was to try and heal my sort of relationship with my own family. Instead, what happened was that I set up this arts project and got involved with all these women. By the end of it, I kind of realised that, oh, I didn't reach that sort of healing that maybe I had sought, even if I hadn't acknowledged it to myself. But what was wonderful was that it felt like it positively impacted so many women and so many women's lives and that so many mums talked about improved relationships with their own mothers or with their children or just a better understanding of their situation and maybe more acceptance and I suppose maybe that's where I've got to through putting all these stories together is a is a better level of acceptance of my situation. I think there's something very powerful about having a space to voice things especially when People have maybe struggled to have their voice heard or to have their story told. I think it can be quite an empowering experience. I think that's quite quite a lot of a few of the women in the Mother in the Bundle book experienced. If you are feeling lower than normal or need immediate support with your well-being, please call Samaritans for free on 116-123 or make an emergency appointment with your GP. Standalone UK are such a small charity, and so they cannot give out individual advice. If you want to talk about the podcast, head online and go to their Twitter page, at UK Standalone, to join in the discussion. Remember that Standalone has lots of advice on their website as part of their guides. The Standalone podcast was produced by me, Jay Sykes, for Becca Bland of Standalone UK.